Section 15 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14. Great Danes, Geese, Mice and Schoolmasters. Germany is the land of Great Danes. I wanted a dog. I had lost two, a bulldog and a bull terrier. And I settled that the third should be a Great Dane. Every student in Marburg, so Joseph Leopold says, likes to swagger into a restaurant, swinging his great stick and followed by his great Dane, who lies down at his feet and takes notice of nobody else. It is just swagger, not sonophilism, for as soon as the bald-headed one does what in England would be called going down, he trades off the companion of his rambles and orgies to another student, who has just come up. But there is a certain regular demand for Great Danes in Marburg and Jena and Bonn, so Great Danes are being raised to meet this demand all over the circumambient country. We picked out a village from which to select a dog, looking over the rampart of the castle of Marburg. We chose a little spot of red with indeterminate edges, that dotted the soft green plain lying spread out flat at our feet it happened to be the village of kappel and joseph leopold confidently informed me that we should find a dog there for sale at something like four pounds or perhaps even three although you have cleverly singled out a place from the bird's eye view of it it is not so easy to go straight there when once you have descended to the same level though it is a fact that in Germany you never have any excuse for not knowing your duty or your place. If France is le pays du tendre, Germany is the country of the precise direction. Every signpost bears the names, writ large and clear, of numberless villages, and we struck the road to Kappel at once. We were walking along in the broad valley of the Lahn, the hills clothed in green rose languidly around us at a little distance. It was all arranged like some form of expensive landscape gardening, on a large calm scale. The absence of hedges gives this quiet premeditated effect. You get stretches of soft rich meadowland, and the feet of the hills, drowned in sedges, rising from beds of yellow colza or red sainfoin and purple clover. In front of us was the Frauenberg, that hill of mystic rites. It is crowned by an old prehistoric earthwork and the ruins of a more modern castle. Behind us was the Wilhelmshöhe facing Marburg, with the modern imitation Gothic tower on it that positively overlooks the towers of the Elizabethan Kirche, and one saw to right and left and in front the roads parting the forest masses laid wide and ready for the kaiserliche postcards that scour his imperial highness's dominions spreading the light of intelligence through the woodland silences without abating one jot of these people's highly educated simplicity the vessel of the spirit is generally as to pattern an old, very old, Berlin, very like the one in which the unfortunate Bourbon family went to Varennes. 
its small windows are always kept tightly closed. The little varnished Kutsche, like a woodland sprite, sits on the box and drives for hours from one village or from one forester's hut to another. He suggests varnish because of his dome-shaped casquette that shines like black carriage-cloth and has the immutable fixed aigrette in the front of it as an assertion of kaiserliche authority. There is seldom room for anyone beside him, but if you are prepared to rough it and sit inside in the Berlin stuffiness, that is the way to get about the country. The Kaiserliche Post penetrates everywhere, where no trains and hardly any foot passengers ever go, right into the swart heart of the Teutobäcker Wald, and that mysterious Eiffel range that hangs over the left bank of the Rhine, and is full of wonderments, witches, and warlocks. Quite the most innocent persons you are likely to see in these Wälder are charcoal burners, the very poor charcoal burners that form the greater number of the characters of Grimm's stories, with their wonderful seventh sons and their little rushlights burning in cottage windows as a refuge for strayed travellers. Sometimes the only posting house is a forsterei, and there you can generally put up for the night if you like and sample the roughest and the wholesomest affairs. The Forster is sometimes, nay generally, a great swell, and you cap him and tug him politely when you meet him with his dog and his gun, walking briskly through lonely glades and clearings. He wears what always looks like a completely new suit of light grey with blue or green facings, and a soft grey felt hat with a cock's feather stuck in the band. It is his plain brown wife, I suppose, who entertains you for a few fennigs under her wooden veranda, gives you beer or coffee and even a plate of soup on one of the tiny little tables covered with the red-checked cloth dear to Germany. Her husband is good company, if you like, and his stories have the peculiar wildness and invraisemblance of stories told by one who does not very often have an opportunity of exchanging ideas and ventilating his experiences over a glass with his brother man. But although these dense woods lined our horizon, we were walking along on the flat dusty road, with the tamest of apple trees bordering it. As we stepped out, a dwarf grew appreciably nearer. Presently we began to meet the troops of geese, and the attendant goose girl that furnishes the feminine element in Grimm, paddling along the muddy road, and as we got still nearer to the village, we saw that the geese were at home. They were not walking, but standing about in front of their cottage doors, so to speak, crouching down beside open gateways, and if they did not actually cackle, looking ready to stick their necks across the road and bar our passage. I have ceased to be afraid of geese and to feel instinctively the calves of my legs tingling as I approach the treacherous, white-breasted things with their cruel yellow beak nestling in the innocent seeming down. But I've left off being civil to them and addressing a kind word to them as I pass. They never respond. A well-nurtured dog or cat or even a donkey at times will do so, 
but there breathes a something wild and untamed in the breast of a goose before it is fattened at any rate it is rebabatif farouche gauche i like to use french words about a german goose it has possibly its civic duties to attend to it is either the sentinel goose to which you happen to address your remarks and of course he is busy or it is the lovely young goose that all the others are chaperoning a goose's politeness is passive if you are very unobtrusive the whole lot will remain sitting as you pass instead of rising with a quack and the effect of a universal curtsy such passivity and as it were ignoring of you as part of the landscape is the greatest sign of confidence that a goose can give children equally farouche but less fierce-looking begin to potter about under your feet as you get nearer the heart of the village in germany the children with their slates and satchels seem to me to be always coming in droves out of school just like english ones they all look very pretty most of them wear costumes a child's costume is just like that of its elders but in miniature the baby of five has as many rows of trimming on her skirt as her mother only justly proportioned to her tininess they suggest a general affluence these gorgeous and variegated garments of the population which is contradicted by the tumble-down decrepit appearance of the abodes from which they pour so much straw litter is heaped pulled out and lying about opulent slushy middens rank as foreground object nondescript washing is stretched over fences or the threshold bush or vine and yet the row of grey-green jugs transfixed bottom upwards on the spikes of the paling and the household vessels placed on the steps each rinsed out efficaciously shining with cleanness bear witness to the hausfrau's real notability and in the worst little house of all with a wide midden of mud and garbage fronting it as ill for the feet polite to cross as the red sea of the israelites chained to a rudimentary kennel between a tumble-down barn and this vast this prehistoric-looking fumier was a brindled darling a perfect darling if someone had offered to roll the red sea of dung away for me to cross i should not have had the patience to wait or the prudence to go round it i don't know how it happened but in a few seconds i was there and my arm on the puissant neck of the great dane of my dreams though he was chained he was gentle sad and very thin i began at once to think of the kennels at charlton and the pier at dover where in preparation for an enforced quarantine of six months i should be obliged to land him in a wooden box or crate which would quite conceal him from view and hand him over crate and all to a chartered official from the government kennels he would cost me first and last including the initial three quite thirteen pounds i should not have the training of him and he would probably never learn to love me but no matter i was determined to have him however joseph leopold who had seen many great danes and intended to be diplomatic about the purchase of this one 
for he saw my determination written large on my face, suggested that we should eat first, before entering into negotiations with the landlord of the inn. This was an inn. I had never before seen an inn like this. Joseph Leopold remarked that there were inns in the Spessart that he could tell me of where fowls slept in the room with you, inns that were moreover in the nature of a poorhouse, so that if you had fared far and had at last succeeded in chartering a night's lodging, you might be turned out at the government behest if a deserving beggar should turn up and demand his right and his due a night's lodging at the hands of his country. This is quite the roughest inn you personally have struck, he admitted. Still, you won't mind what you eat here if you end by getting the dog for three pounds, that is, if he is for sale. For we did not even know that yet, though it seemed probable. I agreed. We did not go inside, for the Stube seemed to be reeking of smoke, though fairly clean. There was a sort of lean-to built against the wall of the house, and a thin, haggard menagere came forward and seemed to ask what she could do for us. Was kann man zu essen bekommen? Joseph Leopold used his usual negligent formula. She mentioned some comestible whose name left Joseph Leopold cold, but apparently it was all there was, and presently she served it. It was Brötchen mit Butter, beer and handkäse the bread was delicious the butter good but the cheese made by hand imagine a piece of yellow soap that you have left by accident in the water in the bathroom imagine yourself taking it out in despair from the bottom of the basin where it has stuck and nipping it frantically in the process then you will realize what handkäse is it has indeed been well squeezed, as its name denotes, in the palm of a large persuasive hand, well used to the duty. The inside remains hard, only the outside softens a little, and a few hours after a slight disgusting sort of skin forms on the soft surface. You cut into it and find all these layers of hardness and softness with a few dejected caraway seeds drifting about here and there. You eat it, and it is of varying degrees of sourness and consistency. Unlike the curate's egg, none of it is bad, but not one square inch tasting like the other. Very nice, I encouraged Joseph Leopold, and now let us go out and look at the dog. The landlord, a hard-featured, dull-voiced, oppressed-looking peasant, came out and spoke kindly to the beautiful, depressed animal. At his master's behest, it relaxed its sad, patient austerity and licked my hand. It licked it to order the hand of a potential owner, passionlessly, automatically. What struck me so strongly about master and dog was their respectable inanity, the vacant good temper of both. Then the chain was undone and the dog was allowed to run about to testify to his powers of locomotion. Round and round the midden he went in a sort of dignified lope, gathering his haunches suavely and surely beneath him, 
to produce that beautiful, easy, resilient stride proper to the Dane. See, he can run, the master said. He is quite young. He would go better. Only I cannot afford to feed him on meat. He spoke spiritlessly. The dog ran spiritlessly. That was it. Without being actually starved, they neither of them had enough to eat. Footnote. This and the whole subsequent passage about the German agricultural population represent without doubt an impressionistic frame of mind on the part of an author, but the conversation with myself is the purest nonsense as well as being the sheerest invention. The innkeeper here, represented as being spiritless, was a wealthy peasant, worth at least five hundred a year in English money, his inn being patronised by students from the neighbouring city, whose taste for walking would not carry them any further than what I would call a middle distance. This gentleman could not afford to give the dog meat to eat, because with him dog breeding was a serious business, his determination being to make a profit of at least four hundred per cent on any outlay upon the animal in question. The peasants of this part of the world are generally suspicious, obstinate and litigious, but they are above all things wealthy. They own their own lands, they quarrel violently about their boundary stones, they rise in open rebellion if the state attempts changes on their territory, even though that redistribution may be for their benefit the state giving them small fertile fields near their house in exchange for a stony acre six miles away in the mountains their suspicious nature is typified by the fact that if you ask one of these peasants the way to the next village he will reply i'm not denying that you take the second turning on the right it is still further exemplified by the crowds of jews that are to be found all through hesher the Hessian peasant detests a Jew, but he much more distrusts his neighbour, so that if peasant Schmidt desires to sell a cow to peasant Braun, he will sell it first to cow agent Isaacstein, and Isaacstein will afterwards sell it to the other peasant. There are, of course, tenant farmers in Germany who are poor, but I should say that upon the whole the German peasant is much better off than the English farmer, and the state, more particularly the Prussian state, does all that it possibly can to foster agrarian prosperity. The prices of agricultural produce are exceedingly high all over Germany. No internal taxes of any kind are put upon Nahrungsmittel, food products, produced within the German Empire. That protection for these articles is very high and rigidly enforced. The German farmer, in certain cases, does not live as well as the English one. When this is the case, it is because he is more provident on weekdays, preferring to be ostentatious at feasts. He practically never has a parlour. Nottingham lace curtains are unknown to him, and wax flowers under glass shades. He may not have a piano, but if he has one, he plays upon it himself, and it is not purchased on the hire system, he is, in fact, a peasant, frequently a very rich peasant, sometimes a quite poor one, but never in his habits, his dress or his ambitions 
a snobbish imitation of the gentry i am of course talking of the peasant proprietor and not of his employé the shepherd the swineherd and the tagelohner the day labourers generally are very poorly paid the furnishings of their huts would cause an english wagoner's mate to experience a sensation of sickness and as for their diet it consists almost entirely of potatoes and maize with an occasional flavouring of bacon but in the nature of the case there are far fewer employed agricultural labourers in germany than there are in england j l f m h end footnote the man hoped to have a little more to eat when he had sold the dog as he was sure he would do for sixty marks the dog if he thought at all probably expected in his doggy way to be better fed when he was bought by some happy-go-lucky lavish student or other we did not buy the dog i cannot now think why i dream of that dog at Kappel sometimes it has become a ghostly dog to me not that i think it was starved to death i am sure it was bought and lived its doggy span but it got mixed up with my sick thoughts in an illness i contracted in the course of the next few weeks and as i lay in my bed at marburg i thought of the day when i should be well and able to go down and across the plain again and buy that dog and feed it up till it could run better and still better i would not allow joseph leopold to go and buy it for me i meant to buy it myself as soon as i got well it was my dog i dreamt of it every night and when i was well enough to travel i was hustled away and nobody remembered the brindled dog i had talked about it in my ravings and desired to take it to england and get my mother to feed it until it could run as we walked home to marburg that evening joseph leopold in answer to my question do you suppose he feeds him replied he feeds him as well as he feeds himself these german peasants are mildly poor but not abjectly so they are kept by their paternal government at a dead level of mediocre efficiency of health it is only in england that the farmers are really what you call prosperous all farmers come to grief in england i said sooner or later now and then but they cannot say they haven't had a good run for their money these unfortunate germans are dully glumly conscious that they are all in the hollow of the large paternal indiscriminating hand he shall not suffer one sparrow to fall etc but if the sparrow has no joie de vivre no fun what does it matter if he keeps up or not english farming is one big gamble with all the excitement of gambling then the german peasant i said to show that i understood knows that he can't come to grief but he knows also that he can't come to pleasure exactly we went back through the paternally tended village and i felt differently about it there were the uncircumscribed middens and the bulging heaps of fodder blanking all the little white-painted faintly derelict houses having the aspect of a decaying tooth and i thought of the large iron hand 
I thought of an illustration in an old storybook of Gulliver, of the helpless Lilliputians huddled into the big enclosing Brobdignagian palm of some Kaiser or other. We picked our way along the broad highway, avoiding the deep ruts in which the water of three days' showers ran, while the white geese, with their underparts smirched, brooded in the furrows, and the dressed-up children paddled in and out. We passed again the rows of house-pots, grey with the soft grey of a Persian cat, perched like hats on the fences, and we emerged onto the broad, unfenced road, with the fields lying close up to it, and punctuated by a scraggy apple-tree dotted at rare intervals. The towers of Marburg surged dimly up, out of a haze of dampness in the distance. But I had not got the dog. We passed something very black presently, a schoolmaster convoying a little flock of pupils. They seemed much occupied in poking sticks into mud-holes in the stubble fields that marched with the road. The schoolmaster industriously indicated these holes to them with the ferrule of his umbrella. "'What are these children doing?' I asked idly. I was tired and annoyed with Germany. "'Is he giving them an agricultural object lesson?' "'No, they're not learning. They are practising agriculture. They are eradicating mice.' "'Killing them, do you mean? "'And the schoolmaster showing the little wretches how?' I shrieked. "'The mice are ruining the crops,' Joseph Leopold said mildly. "'These rodents are very noxious. "'I remember last year at G-Dash there was a plague of mice. "'You could not walk in the fields without putting your foot on them.' "'He mourned it on about the damage done by these pretty little creatures.' Yes, I have seen even a rat that was pretty. And anyway, it is a dumb animal. I was so annoyed with Germany, as I said before, that I walked on in a resentful silence. To see a schoolmaster, instead of acting as he should have done in the interests of humanity, actually inciting his class to deeds of cruelty, was too much for the traces of British feeling that yet lingered in my alien breast. And then it was Saturday evening. The German church bells began to ring in Sunday, as is their custom. I hate church bells as much as the devil is said to do, and now I hate German schoolmasters. I thought of another German custom which I had heard hinted at, and it was connected with mice, so I took it up as a stick to hit a German with. I suppose cats do the dirty work in England, I said, but I never seem to see a cat in Germany. Plenty of kittens, but no cats. I suppose you eat them as soon as they are fat enough. Something in that, Joseph Leopold remarked cruelly, but the real reason is that they eat the birds. Germans love birds and would sooner have an aviary than a cattery like yours. I am a German, and I love birds. I got back to Marburg without a dog, and with several illusions the less about Germans, and about Joseph Leopold in particular. But when Joseph Leopold referred to his stay in G-Dash, 
I remembered an anecdote which a learned friend of his, a professor in the said town, once related to me. Joseph Leopold's sentimental vagary amused and interested the professor, and I set it against his callousness with regard to mice and cats. Everyone knows that Reifleisch is the housekeeper's best asset in Germany, and her English sister, who sighs so pathetically for a new beast, is emphatically the poorer in culinary invention, because the English butcher takes so little definite cognizance of the animal that pants in vain. But in G-Dash, deer are caught and brought in alive from the neighbouring forest, placed in some improvised pen and fattened. Clients of a favourite eating place may see and inspect their meal of a month hence increasing behind his wattled prison. Children may poke the poor thing with their sticks, prod him, and throw him mock food to eat, stare and jibe at the patient misery of the wild creature prisoned in an enclosing cage, where he may not evade their persecution, but only lie down and await his doom. One day, when the right amount of adipose tissue has deposited itself on his bones, the windpipe is slit, and the table of mine host of the Golden Anchor knows the rest. It is true that if one allows such fine feelings to sway one, one must leave off eating Ray, and Joseph Leopold likes Ray, and eats it whenever he can get it. But the sight of the means to the end is repellent to him. Each prod of a passenger's umbrella at the deer of G-Dash, each stupid onslaught on the creature's temporary peace, went to his heart. It would have gone to mine. And when later on he confessed to the incident, half in shame, half in pride, I admitted that he could have taken no other course. He approached the inn people and asked if he might be permitted to purchase the deer alive. They naturally agreed at once. A price was fixed, three pounds ten, and Joseph Leopold took his grey, hired a cart, and placed the bemused and recalcitrant beast in it. Behold, the philanthropist driving off jubilantly to the forest, across a couple of fields or so until he comes with his prey to a clear space, where the dead leaves are not so thick, and the low boughs hold away a little. Then he releases the frightened, scared thing, and watches it bound away to the forest. One hoped it lived happily ever after to the natural term of a rodeo's life. But would its friends be kind to it? Would its limbs be as nimble after their long spell of restraint? Would it not get caught again and eaten? Did Joseph Leopold himself eat it after all? There is no knowing. But the peace that passeth understanding must have been his, as he watched the deer bound away into the open. Such a thing can never have happened before in all the annals of deerdom. And as the German Herr Professor who first told me the tale said, the inn people were no losers and promptly supplied themselves with a fresh deer. Joseph Leopold did not know this, for natural modesty kept the hero of such a virtuous and unworldly action at a distance from the scene of his exploit. End of section 15